Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax as we beam science into your brain. I'm Mark West, and on this edition, we'll feature augmented reality and SETI and astrobiology. But first up, in the future, will air conditioning be a thing of the past? Dr Angus Gentle, working in the Physics and Advanced Materials Department at the University of Technology, Sydney, is a postdoc student doing an ARC discovery project. Angus is designing a smart system to cool things down using the cold of space and the power of the sun. Dr Angus Gentle explained his research to Ian Wolfe. I understand you're looking at smart paints that can make things cool down more quickly. Yeah, so I'm looking at paints as well as systems. So that'll include heat exchangers and cover materials so that you can get below ambient temperatures. If you just draw a paint on the surface, the wind comes past and the convection will warm back up the substrate, so the sample of the roof. So how does the cooling work? So effectively, the sky is transparent in some wavelengths of thermal energy. So in the infrared? In the infrared, yes. So heat that goes surface that emits will radiate towards the sky, and some wavelengths will go straight through the sky into space, and the other wavelengths will be absorbed by the sky. So if it's absorbed by the sky, there's a limit to how cold the surface could get which is just equal to the sky temperature. But because you can emit in the wavelengths that go into space, no energy comes back from those wavelengths. So it doesn't bounce back off the atmosphere? It doesn't bounce back, it goes straight through, which is one of the issues with um, greenhouse warming. Yes. And so it relates all back into that while I research. So basically you're tuning the frequency Um, of the infrared light that it emits? Yeah, we, we tune it so that the maximum absorption or emission is within the wavelengths which are transparent to the atmosphere so that we can pump as much heat out as possible without being affected by the atmosphere. So, and these are passive systems, you don't have any moving parts? Yeah. You can have a heat exchanger with a pump in it so you can pump water through or you could set it up like solar heat collectors on the roofs. Some have pumps, some are just natural convection causing the water to flow through. You've explained that it's emitting infrared radiation that's tuned to exactly the right wavelength to go right through and not bounce back. Is that the main part of it? Is there, is there more to radiative cooling than that in the systems that you're in, designing? In the ones that we're designing, that's the, the main part is emitting in the right wavelengths and reflecting in the other wavelengths. And the other section of it in the systems part is cover materials which are transparent to the correct wavelengths. So then we can stop wind affecting the systems. Ah. So that's a big part of it, as well as looking at how you could do a heat exchanger and storing of the cold. So you could store the cold in cold water and then pump it through a building to keep the building cold to replace air conditioning. So this would be a replacement for air conditioning? Yes. Fantastic. So air conditioning uses a lot of electricity, and it uses refrigerants, which are bad for the atmosphere, and it's generally something we really need in this sort of heat, but is a bit costly in terms of coal. How much energy does your cooling system use instead? You could set it up so you're not using any energy at all, so you're, you're creating the cold overnight and storing it in water and just pumping, letting the water flow through naturally. Or you could have a low-power pump to pump the water through to make it a little bit more efficient. So you could perhaps have a solar-powered 
system if you stored some electricity during the day. Uh, definitely. So you're storing the electricity during the day and you're collecting the cool at night. Yes. That's amazing. And that gets you as cool as an air-conditioned system. The coldest that we've got with them is about 15 degrees below the coldest temperature overnight. So in earlier in the year when it was about 10 degrees ambient temperature, we are getting to minus 4 degrees. So we're creating ice if we wanted. That's considerably stronger than air conditioners yeah. do. But the quantity of heat being pumped is lower than an air conditioner. So right. you've got to store up the energy over a longer period of time because it's not instantaneous cooling. So you'd basically install this in a building and run it maybe for a few days and then it'd start being very efficient. Yeah, you could, you'd leave it running and because buildings are all becoming quite efficient thermally these days because of the building codes, you don't have to pump very much heat instantaneously. It's more about storing up the cold and using it when required. Wow. Could you apply this to smaller systems like cars and trucks and vehicles? You could put it onto vehicles, I suppose, but with cars, for example, you usually have the air conditioner turn on time is not that great. And the thermal mass of a car is not very much to actually cool down with a car's air conditioner, so it's probably not worthwhile because you'd have to have a large storage tank for the water. Ah, so you've got to store all if, the cool If stuff. you're storing the cool, that would make it not as efficient for the driving around aspect of the car. Right, so mainly for buildings. Mainly for buildings. We've made a little eskies, so yes. if you wanted to keep your food cold when you go camping, that sort of thing, just as a demonstration things to trial out the products. Okay, so you can have an esky that's passively cooled doesn't need you to put anything in the fridge yeah. and doesn't need any electricity. Yes. That's pretty awesome. I would think, okay, but an esky but not a car. I'll have to, have to think about the difference there. But for with the esky, you're just maintaining the cold temperature as opposed to trying to cool it down rapidly when the person gets in so you don't need to actually... St- you're using the food or the liquid inside the esky as the storage medium. Right. So if you can do that for eskies... Is there potential for further refrigeration in sort of remote areas? Yes, definitely. You could have, for remote places, you could set up a cool room for keeping food or whatever cold. So there's all sorts of, and there might even be industrial applications in that case. Yes, as long as you've got areas on the roof where you can collect the, have as a radiating panel. With the materials that we're using to create these, some of them are vacuum deposited, so like Glass in architectural buildings, large panels of glass are coated with various metals and oxides. We could use a similar technique to deposit large surfaces of our materials. Alternatively, we could use a polymer sheet which is stuck onto the onto an aluminium substrate, which will enable us to get the desired properties that we're after. So Angus, tell me about the laboratories you work in. So up in on in the tower building is where the physics department has most of its equipment. And up there I deposit lots of our films. We've got vacuum deposition systems, so I'll create the film and then I'll put it into one of our instruments to measure the optical properties of it, so how much it reflects the sun, and then also how much thermal irradiation it can emit. So we look at the spectral properties of it in the infrared. And then thirdly, we take it up onto the roof and see how it will perform outdoors and then compare it to computer models of how it should behave using the optical and thermal properties. And so air conditioners in the future may be a thing of the past. Hopefully. Terrific. Angus Gentle, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Ian. Angus Gentle completed a double degree in electrical engineering and physics at UTS before going on to physics honours and finally a PhD in the Department of Physics and Advanced Materials at UTS. 
and is now designing systems that will replace expensive air conditioning and refrigeration with clean, green and free radiative cooling. You can find out more at science.uts.edu.au. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, www.diffusionradio.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Carol Oliver is an astrobiologist at the Australian Centre for Astrobiology. Astrobiology is one of these strange things that intrigues me, as we've never actually discovered life outside of Earth. So how can you have a field of study called astrobiology? I spoke to Carol about this and about the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial life. The first question I asked her was how does SETI actually go about looking for little green men? SETI looks for, uses the radio spectrum for um, looking for signals from outer space uh, that may hint of intelligence elsewhere in our galaxy. It is limited to our galaxy uh, because of the uh, fact that space is very large. Of course, our galaxy is 100,000 light years, um, and that's the uh, time it takes uh, light to travel from one end of the galaxy to the other, which is around about 300,000 kilometers per second for 100,000 years. So it's very large. And our galaxy is one of maybe 100 billion other galaxies in, in the universe. So there's an awful lot of space out there. It would be unusual if we are, in fact, the only life in the universe. Um, but we might be. We just don't know the answer to that question, and that's what SETI is about. Because looking for intelligent life, I guess, is different to looking for just ordinary life. I mean, the, the electromagnetic spectrum is infinitely big. Where do you look? Oh, well, that's very easy. Um, it, it happens that there's a, a space in the um, radio spectrum where noise from the rest of the universe drops to the minimum level. Uh, and it's between two molecules, the H line and the OH line. And if you put those two together, you get water. Um, and so it's called the water hole. And it's assumed that we would actually find um, a message from uh, extraterrestrial intelligence at that point, because it would be the same for anybody in the universe. Uh, if you're going to transmit, you're going to transmit at the, the quietest part of the spectrum. But even then, I mean, there's billions of frequencies that we could be looking for. So really, SETI is a sort of a nine-dimensional search. It's uh, three times in space, up, down, and um, across. Uh, time, frequency, polarization, there's two of those, uh, modulation and transmitted power. So truly is looking for a needle in a haystack. That's right. Yes, indeed. And we really can't, I think, rely on just a directed message uh, to Earth, which we're reliant on at the moment. moment. Um, but uh, if you can imagine that in the past 70 years we've been transmitting television and radio signals, do they just leak naturally into space? Uh, if we could t detect those... Um, then uh, we may be able to detect uh, intelligence elsewhere in the universe. Presumably it would be a fairly big meteor event if we found some extraterrestrial life. So we haven't found any yet, but in, I think it was 1977, they had the, the wow signal. Yes. What, uh, what was that about? Well, that was uh, at a telescope no, no longer in existence, and it's when they um, used to have uh, reams of paper uh, deliver what was coming through the um, uh, collection system. Um, the operator came in one morning and looked at these numbers on these charts, and they were way off the scale. They could only be a very narrow, a narrow band signal 
from very, very far away. Um, and the operator circled those numbers and wrote WOW, by, hence the name, the WOW signal. Um, in spite of many years of uh, searching that part of the spectrum again, it's never been found again. So for SETI purposes, we don't regard it as a SETI signal because we need proof. We need it to be... Um, uh, for others to be able to uh, go along and, and have a look at that part of the spectrum and, and detect this narrow band, band signal for themselves. So although SETI has occasionally found um, uh, a signal repeated twice, it's not continuous uh, and there could be other explanations. Um, SETI is a scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence in the universe, so uh, has a very high bar uh, to, to then announce that they've actually found a signal. Where on Earth is SETI based? It's based all over the Earth, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the, I think the, 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 the most strategic and biggest organisation is the SETI Institute in California. Uh, they sit out just outside the gates of NASA Ames, and most of their employees actually work in NASA in aspects of astrobiology. Uh, which is looking for um, life elsewhere in the universe, but not necessarily intelligent. Um, they have uh, used the largest uh, telescopes on the Earth, um, Arecibo in Puerto Rico, and also the Parkes Radio Telescope here in uh, New South Wales. Um, and they've also now got the Allen Telescope Array. Now, that's in Hat Creek in California. Uh, they want 350 small six-metre dishes there. They've currently got uh, 42. And those have cost um, 50 million to date. Uh, but they're doing uh, SETI in concert with normal radio astronomy. So those uh, satellite, uh, so those dishes have uh, a double use. And also, uh, in off time, uh, the Air Force, um, the U.S. Air Force, uses it for tracking satellite debris. All um, right. Yeah. So they're hoping to increase that, that number of um, uh, of dishes. But they are the only dedicated search in the world. There are other smaller projects around the globe. Um, there are none currently in the hem uh, Southern Hemisphere, which is a bit of a shame because in the Southern Hemisphere, we look right into the heart of the galaxy, which means we've got the best real estate in the world. Okay. Um, and all the others are in the Northern Hemisphere. But that, you know, that's what we, we're stuck with. And you can participate in SETI at home, can't you, with your, on the internet, I think? You can. And that's been going since about 1995. Okay. And uh, basically it's collecting all the data that um, has ever been collected by SETI, by um, the Serendip Group at um, UC Berkeley. Um, and little parcels of data are sent out to your CPU when you're not using it, and it analyzes it and then sends it back. Um, and um, it, it, if, you, if you discovered a signal, then you would be on the paper. Um, okay. To date, since 1995, they haven't found anything. There have been a couple of interesting episodes, but they haven't found anything. The interesting thing about um, SETI at Home is that technology has now been employed for other things, for example, in cancer research. And you're with the Australian Centre for Astrobiology. I um, am, yeah. I often think astrobiology is an interesting field because... As at the moment, we don't even know if it exists. We haven't found anything outside of uh, outside of Earth. So, what's what's astrobiology all about? Well, astrobiology is about the um, uh, study of uh, life elsewhere in the universe, uh, and uh, really, we're looking uh, most closely um, at our own solar system. 
so we, um, Mars is of, of particular interest. Uh, but there are, have been a whole heap of things that have persuaded NASA uh, to make astrobiology a, a, a special item to, to concentrate on. And it's, it's been caused by a whole series of events. Um, one was in 1995 when we first discovered the first extrasolar planet, uh, 51 Peg, um, around a G-type star, uh, star. And this star, very, very much like our own, but the planet was... Um, uh, quite chaotic. It was like it revolved around its sun in just four days, a hot Jupiter, very unusual class of planet. Um, and we've managed to find like 403 uh, extra solar planets to date um, mm-hmm. by a method called the Doppler method. Um, and it's, so it's quite interesting, but none of them are of small rocky planets like our own. Uh, that method doesn't uh, do that. But we do have the Kepler mission, uh, which is now looking for Earth-sized planets uh, as we speak. Um, we've had the Mars meteorite in 1996, which indicated uh, life might be present on uh, Mars. Now, um, that's, uh, the jury's still out on that, but we've discovered since then so many things about Mars, um, even the, perhaps the presence of liquid water at certain um, in, in certain cases on Mars um, from the latest mission, which was uh, the Phoenix lander. So Mars remains quite intriguing. Why would we do this? Well, we really need to understand our place in space. Where did we come from? Um, what's our future? Uh, this is our home. People, people go out to work every day um, and they go home and they go about their daily business, but they don't really think about planet Earth as a spaceship uh, around a star. We're very dependent on our star, the sun, um, and um, our place of that sun in the rest of the the galaxy and indeed the universe. Um, And there are things out there that could impact our lives very quickly. So um, astrobiology is a very interesting area of study and covers all of the sciences. That was Carol Oliver talking about life in outer space. The giant city telescopes we typically apply At any time can only see a millionth of the sky So the chances they'll be missing any signal that is sent Are roughly 99.9999% But when Project Argus grows to full strength show that the suns shall never set on SETI. Ancient mythic guard beasts that had a hundred eyes could see in all directions and completely scan the skies. If we used five thousand dishes, had them pointed all around, we could intercept all signals which should chance to run aground. And when Project Argus grows to full strength, we will show that the suns shall never set on SETI. To build so many research-grade radio telescopes would deplete our planet's coffers and exceed our fondest hopes. 
But enlist 5,000 volunteers, persons who are skilled in technology no government could ever fund or build. And watch Project Argus grow to full strength as we show that the suns shall never set on SETI. We've privatized the effort that was lacking public funds to detect the beings living in the light of distant suns. Though the search may take a lifetime, it is very clearly shown that if we do not pursue it, we will always be alone. So let Project Argus grow to full strength as we show that the suns shall never set on SETI. Augmented reality is where information about the world is layered over your view of the world. Ian Wolfe went to Sculpture by the Sea at Bondi Beach to talk with augmented reality pioneers Rob Manson and Chris Betcher. My name is Rob Manson from a company called Mob and we build uh, mobile augmented reality experiences. Uh, my name's Chris, Chris Betcher, uh, Betcher Boy on Twitter, and uh, I, I'm the technology integrator at uh, PLC, Presbyterian Ladies College, Sydney, uh, where I get to work with teachers and kids to try and help them make technology a part of their day-to-day classroom experience. And we're here at Sculpture by the Sea at Bondi, and I believe you're using some augmented reality here. Yeah, so we've built uh, Laya, um, which is a mobile augmented reality experience that's using... A browser that runs on the iPhone and on Android. The browser is actually called Layar, and it's from a company called Sparks Mobile in the Netherlands. So you get your mobile phone, you get your iPhone, and you switch to the browser, and what you point the camera at things and you look at the scene around you. Is that how it works? Yeah, uh, so the phone uses the GPS to work out where on the surface you are, where on the planet, and then based on the direction from the digital compass, it works out your orientation and it can detect the points of interest around you. So that's the layout that we build that maps out those points of interest. And as you pan your phone around, it shows you the interesting points. So what sort of interesting points will people see? For this year, it was really a trial. So we've only got uh, four or five of the key um, invited artists and then some of the utility things, so public transport, cafe, those sorts of things. Um, So if you want to know where the toilets are, it'll be showing on through your iPhone? Yes, that's right, yeah. And I believe, Chris, also you were looking at some games based on this sort of technology on the iPhone? Yeah, I came down here uh, because I'm working on a little project at the moment uh, to look at Sculpture by the Sea as as an event and to look at how technology might be able to be used back in the classroom to help make that richer. And one of the things uh, that caught my eye was this idea of augmented reality. Uh, So I got very excited when I discovered there was actually a Sculpture by the Sea layer in the layer application. So I came down here excited the other day and started pointing my phone at all sorts of things and um, uh, at first was a little disappointed that there was a lot of um, you know, cafes and bus stops and not enough sculptures, um, yes. but I understand now after talking to Rob that you know, it is a trial and, uh, and it does have implications on catalogue sales and that yeah, type yeah. of thing, so uh, I get that. Um, but I'd be really keen to see where this goes in the future because the notion of being able to walk up to an object, point your device at it and have it tell you about that thing is fascinating and so many applications outside of this field you know, for, for basically everything you can think of I think this is a very thin edge of the wedge I think uh, Chris is raising some interesting ideas 
before about with students and different layers, people being able to overlay other sculptures and models on top of it. So you can really build your own version of the exhibition and add your own elements to the exhibition as well. So this is sort of like a geographical version of the web, is that yeah. right? So anybody can publish on it? Yes, yeah. We've created a service called Builder that lets you create your own points of interest and the idea really is that you can leave markers and add and extend to it. It should be like the web, yeah. Well, that, that was my first thought when I came down here and realised there actually weren't that many sculptures yet in that uh, data layer. It was uh, This would be a great project for kids to do, to, for the kids to come down and build the information about that. You know, they go to do the research assignment and figure out what they need to say and then build the point of interest and drop it into the layer. So, you know, I went home and signed up for a dev account and tried to figure out how to do it and came down today and spoke to Rob and got a bit more insight into that. So, but I think it's a... To get students actually building content rather than just consuming it, you know, that's really what we're all about in schools these days is not just being a consumer but a producer. And so on, like on the iPhone, we're already bringing in the Flickr images. I think the kids should be able to do that, take their photos, annotate it. So you can build up a much richer perspective of the, the artworks than just those from necessarily the artists themselves. Right, so what's the next step for you guys? I mean, you're, you're obviously getting the kids involved, Chris, and, and Rob, you're... Uh, so, yeah, so we built the Sculpture by the Sea website and the iPhone and mobile sites and the layer. Um, that's just part of the commercial development we do. And so we're just trying to build as much of an online community and add as many layers and as much value as we can to that. Right, so if people want to look into this for themselves, where are you on the web or where are you on the internet? If you go to buildar, so buildar.com, um, that's the public service we've got where you can set up a free account and start creating your own points of interest. And our company is called uh, Mob Labs, so moblabs.com.au. Terrific. And Chris, if people want to find you on the internet? Uh, if they just Google the name Betcha Boy, they'll probably stumble across me. Uh, but uh, um, www.betchablog.com is uh, sure to find me. Terrific. So Augmented Reality is already at Bondi Beach. It's sculpture by the sea and it's coming to you soon. That was Ian Wolfe talking to Rob Manson and Chris Betcher about the futuristic, cybernetic world of augmented reality. And unfortunately, we have to bring you back to reality now, because that's it for this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, wild passionate praise, or if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send us an email at diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast over on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were myself, Mark West, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Mark West. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show.